0: It's Thursday, September 28th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night in Simi Valley, California, presidential debates hit a new low. And what
1: you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say, because I can't
0: This includes the time Donald Trump ran roughshod over Chris Wallace and Joe Biden. But in a way, that 2020 presidential debate did deliver on one promise of debates- Gave viewers insight into the character and comportment of the candidates. By the cut of his jib test, it passed. Last night's debate low was lower. Now, it wasn't when Nikki Haley and Tim Scott bickered about drapes, it wasn't when Mike Pence made a whimsical or maybe even reference to sleeping with his own wife wasn't when North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum bit the head off a live bat and declared I am the Lizard King. No, it was this gambit by moderator Dana Perino.
1: It's now obvious that if you all stay in the race, former President Donald Trump wins the nomination. None of you have indicated that you're dropping out. So which one of you on stage tonight should be voted off the island? (laughs) Marker to write your choice on the notepad in front of you. 15 <laughs> seconds starting now. Of the people on the stage, Are you who serious? should be? I'm absolutely do serious. That, with all due respect,
0: wow. I mean, we're here, yeah, like, yeah. Well, you know we're happy to debate, sure. not, not, I think that that's disrespectful to it. my I'm fellow competitors. Nobody yeah. wants to so. participate. Most, Let's do some questions. Let's talk about Worth a shot, right? No. Because if Perino watched the first debate, she'd have known that these candidates showed authority and dominance in the moment by refusing to engage in even routine debate asks, like gesturing via hand-raising. Ron DeSantis, shut that down! You can't solve fentanyl, the Ukraine war, or the absence of a frontrunner who basically seems out of reach of everyone on the stage. You can't do that during a debate, but damn it, you can shut down some Jeff Probst-inspired gimmickry. By the end, Vivek Ramaswamy had slipped into the skin of another human being, a hail fellow well-met, son of Ronald Reagan type, no one bought it. Chris Christie tried out a nickname to hang on the reigning Nicknamer-in-Chief. And I want to look in that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. And Haley, though adept with zingers aimed at Ramaswamy, and actually convincing that she thought about education policy for more than a second and a half, was interrupted and interrupty. She is right about the drapes, however. And what the hell is Tim Scott all about? The nice guy who unfairly smears his in-state rival, the voice of racial sensibility, who then goes on to say that LBJ's great society programs have been harder for black Americans to overcome than slavery? Fact check rates four Beecher Stowe's. He lost the Robert Caro vote with that one. And Pence was left to squintly gaze, confident he'd outperformed Asa Hutchinson. Ron DeSantis was left to defend an anti-fracking stance that actually is the right stance for Floridians and most Americans, but not for the people in the room. And Doug Burnham was left to ask staffers to hose him down from all those bat entrails slathered around his bare torso. That really, you know, that really was an odd moment. And we, all of us watching, were left to say, man, I wish there was an alternative to all of this. And far away, one man. In Macomb County Michigan having just completed a speech to a non-union auto plant nodded with confidence and in this rare case the truth and said oh there is an alternative there is a big one out there on the show today I spiel a little bit about other people's podcasts but first We continue our conversation with historian and author Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Today, we talk about how the past shaped the present day's authoritarianism, Heather's optimism about America and a little bit about the Electoral College. Heather Cox Richardson up next. Historian Heather Cox Richardson is out with a new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And we were talking about the general idea of the world that reigned in the post-war period, something generally referred to as the liberal consensus. It did a lot for us. But butting against the liberal consensus was movement conservatism, which Richardson is critical of. But I asked her, let us say... That at this time, you had honestly held conservative beliefs about the world, not racist, not rapacious, just deferring to the markets more than the instincts of planners, just more pro-business than pro-bureaucrat. Didn't the liberal consensus fail such a thinker? And didn't it create a gap in which reasonable conservatism, but also unreasonable conservatism, could flow? So the question then is, is it really principled or is it uh, an attempt
1: to clothe the idea of getting something for yourself, either power or money or attention in the language of principle in order to get other people on board as well, especially when historically we know that the arguments they were making were not in fact going to deliver a more just society. Getting rid, for example, of Brown versus Board of Education was not going to help Black Americans become equal Uh, to white Americans in, in society. So I think you're back to that question that keeps me up at night.
0: Yeah. So maybe even principled isn't the right way to think about it. You could have principles that I actually, I bet that the, uh, you know, Southerners who believed in the aristocracy and the inferiority of black people, I I suppose that's an honestly held belief, odious as it is. I'm thinking of the parts of conservatism that looked at the 90% highest tax rate and said, this is inefficient and confiscatory. And it was just an illogical tax rate to have. And very few people paid it. But the fact that, It was there had downstream effects and they were mostly negative on the economy. I look at what Buckley was looking at in terms of communism and certainly, and he was a defender of McCarthy and McCarthy went way too far, but there were honestly people within the United States, uh, foreign policy apparatus that didn't understand, uh, the threat that Stalin and the Soviets, um, presented. And I think Buckley did more than, but not just Buckley, Democrats, Scoop Jackson, John F. Kennedy, they understood. And I think Buckley helped them um, concentrate their minds. And yet, especially, maybe I praise Buckley and denigrate Bozell just because of what maybe each of their children have become. But I do think that in American politics with a two-party system, and you know all about the um, inefficiency of third parties and the impossibility of third parties. You have to make coalitions and the coalition available to these movement conservatives were some parts that I'm glad existed in the American conversation, even if I don't necessarily agree with them, and some parts that were horrible and odious, but that was their cobbled together coalition. Maybe I'm doing too much work to excuse them.
1: Well, there's a lot in that that some of which I would absolutely push back on because if you think, for example, about the highest tax bracket under Eisenhower, which was 91, percent the real rate that most people in that uh, in that tax bracket paid was in the 70s. That, of course, was in part paying off the World War II debt. So the idea that it it was a, a net negative on the economy, I, I just I'm not I'm not there with you, but the the there is a It seems to me here here's a bottom line it seems to me that we need a a wide range of ideas to make the country move forward but those ideas must be premised on truth they must be premised on reality so if i am getting you to vote for me by telling you that you know my neighbor is going to come over and rape my daughters that's not a legitimate political discourse and of course mccarthy pioneered that in our country because modern media enabled him to get stories out without fact-checking. And by the time the fact-checking came along, it was too late. People believed what they had heard first. The idea that movement conservatism relied on that after they discovered that, in fact, Americans, when put with the their ideas unadorned, rejected them. The idea that they went down that rabbit hole, I think the, the danger of that kind of political discourse is clear from where it has led them which is to a place where it just astonishes me every day that we have major politicians a major political party who are just flat out lying and that's something i have never seen in american history before where the that's that is the i mean every day i read um uh kevin mccarthy's the speaker of the house kevin mccarthy's uh twitter feed and it's it's just, it's just not true. And you sit there and think that's the freaking speaker of the house, you know, have some respect for our political discourse and that i think has we've it's never roots. had that we've never had that we have never had a political party certainly we've had we, like you say i said earlier on we've had wackos forever and and that would be a lot of fun to talk about but the idea that the ideology and by ideology and principle i don't necessarily mean i endorse it i'm saying it's a way of thought that that depends on a public discourse that is rooted in lies the big lie for example that's new and and that's, to my mind, an a complete rejection of the whole concept of the enlightenment on which this country was theoretically founded.
0: Yeah. So I do want to contrast some of the periods of the book that you talk about with the authoritarianism of the present. The authoritarianism of the southern plantation owner who felt that he was a fine horseman and was protecting women and the black people who he... Uh, enslaved, that was explicitly an aristocratic ideal. Explicitly. They would say we are elites, our people are elites, and elitism is good. The populism of Donald Trump is the opposite. He might be the richest president we've ever had, and he might be a total hypocrite, but at least the argument is one of anti-elitism. So how does that fact uh, fit into your theory?
1: Well, I think that that the the stated ideology of those two might look different, but remember that the whole reason the large reason I hate absolutes. When we talk about history, but the reason that the, the elite Southerners, and it's worth remembering that it's a very small percentage of Southern enslavers who are considered the large planters who run things. Uh, the most in white enslavers in the American South had one, maybe two enslaved people, uh, that, and they just didn't have that much political power that they developed this idea that white people are, 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 not only better than black people, which is deeply ingrained by then in American society, but also should rule everything uh, because they have to find some way to continue to get those white voters to keep them in power, even though their policies have concentrated wealth among a very small part of the Southern population. And that's not unlike what people like Donald Trump are doing. Although I, I don't think Donald Trump is a politician in the mold of the pol- political leaders of the 1850s, because he's not a politician. What he is, and has always been, is a freaking brilliant salesman. So he took that ideology of the Republican Party, which was a rising oligarchy from the you know, 19, the 1980s, taking off in the 1990s, and really hitting its stride in the 2000 aughts, uh, he took that ideology, which was not unlike at all the language of the, the people in the 1850s in the American South, the leaders in the American South. And he used that language and that uh, that image to then rise to enough power that he could mirror what his voters wanted. And so he be, I think he's in a, a bit of a break from the way we normally think about American political ideology. And in part, because of that is such a fascinating character is because in a sense, he was a mirror of a certain kind of electorate.
0: The precipice we're on is anti-majoritarian. I mean, it depends on these flaws in the electoral college in the past. And it's not like we've never been threatened with authoritarianism before. Has it consistently been a, a, a minority? Um, or has, is the, the consistent pattern that when authoritarianism takes hold, it exploits the fact that a minority can gain power in the U.S.? Uh,
1: I think the latter. It is. Um, it, it, I think it's worth stepping back a bit and recognizing that you don't need to become a strong man or become an oligarchy or become an authoritarian system unless you're in a minority. If you have the majority, you don't have to create all these mechanisms for holding on to power when you've already got it. So for example, if you look at the States right now that are imposing restrictions on the vote and changing, you know, districts and doing all kinds of different ways to manipulate the vote, you don't see it in, in States that there's a really comfortable, happy majority, um, And the reason for that is if you are already in power and you've already got a majority of people behind you, you don't have to rig the vote. So by definition, an authoritarian or an oligarchical system requires there to be a manipulation of the system to keep a very few people in power. So that's the the place to start with the idea of the rise of the moment we're in now. Is it an attempt to import minority rule and impose it on the rest of Americans? Absolutely. Because by definition, you don't need
0: it if you're in the majority. Yeah. So listeners might hear what you're saying and say, Ooh, pretty dark. And it is dark, but you're actually an optimist because I don't want to appropriate Bill Clinton. Is it basically that you think there's nothing wrong with America that can't be solved by something that's right with America?
1: Um, I, I don't want to appropriate him either, but I would say yes. I mean, I, I, I believe in people and in a society. Like ours that has traditionally strong guardrails, I think it's different in countries that don't have strong guardrails. I mean, in a way, it goes back to what you were saying about if you're not accustomed to something, you don't necessarily see the 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 problem with it. The, the see that being challenged. We are accustomed to peaceful transitions of power. We are accustomed to majority rule. And I I think sometimes when people tell me that we're all going to hell in a handbasket, explain to me what that looks like. You know, explain to me what it looks like in this country if a very small majority, minority managed to take power over the rest of us. Do we just say, oh, goody, we're happy with that? I think the answer to that is no. And I also don't think, I think most of us agree on most issues, including the hot button issues. And the issue has been making people wake up to the fact that those are endangered and and one of the things that really gives me hope is the fact that we were in an extraordinarily similar circumstance in the 1850s and within a number of years people who cared about the concept of equality before the law thoroughly racist people by the way um but were concerned about their own standing in such a system came together and said no no, no this is what we stand for and within years the our american legal system had tossed out the idea of enslavement as a system, except as punishment for crime, a big loophole, by the way. But if we did it before, when we didn't have the kind of media we have now, and when we are having a period now when things are moving slowly, which sounds weird, but giving people time really to digest what's happening and saying, no, I don't like that. I have every expectation we can pull it back together.
0: How bad a flaw of the Constitution is the fact that it's almost possible, impossible to amend it? It can
1: be amended. We are due for a lot of amendments. They tend to come in waves. I think a bigger flaw in the constitution, a huge flaw in the constitution was the, the framers did not expect the rise of political parties. And they could not imagine an era in which people would deliberately support a president who had committed the sort of actions that, that. and I can pick a number of presidents, but let's pick on former president Trump had done. That would a thousand percent never have flown As late as, you know, 1870, I'm sorry, 1974 with Watergate. So I think that's a bigger flaw. I think the other big issue we have is that some of the things that need to be fixed in our system are, are quite longstanding. I mean, the reason we have a cap on the House of Representatives is from 1929, we have lived with this skewing of the system since then and convincing people that we have to fix it in some fashion. Is, is going to be a hard sell. I watch, there's a, there are a number of articles that appear in the Washington Post, and I think I remember who wrote them, but I'm not going to say it in case I'm wrong, talking about ways in which we could address the, the representation issues in this country. And I always love to see how many comments things get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you write about Trump and it gets 7,900 comments and you write about ways to fix the Electoral College and it gets 71 comments. And I'm thinking in the scheme of things, (laughs) people should be commenting on that one.
0: I think Danielle Allen wrote that. That's correct. That's exactly
1: who I thought. Um,
0: But I think about the Electoral College, I give our founding fathers a little leeway. They were reinventing this from uh, Athenian times. Okay, so you got that one wrong, but- Then you would say, okay, the problem is they can't course correct. But I do wonder, is there such evidence that we course correct in the right way? Or even if we got out of the confines of the electoral college, if it was easy enough to do that, it might be easy enough to enact some other laws that would have been just as deleterious to the actual flourishing of democracy and pluralism.
1: Well, one of the things that makes this moment so very different, I think, is that for the first time as we are working out these questions, we have significant populations of black people, brown people, and politically active women who are not voting as their fathers, husbands, and brothers do. That gender split began in 1980, of course, with the election of Reagan, and it's gotten bigger and bigger. And that adds a a new weight to the way we look at these issues that we have never had before and i think that's one of the reasons that there is such terror on the part of those who are concerned about losing what they consider traditional society but it also is one of the things that that i think it's important to highlight in this moment that those marginalized peoples need the protections of the declaration of independence they need the protections of the law They need to have a right to have a say in their government. And that's not radical at all for me to be saying that. That is literally what people have been saying, including people like Abraham Lincoln have been saying throughout our history. But now for the first time, we're in a position, at least currently, where those people have a voice. And that opens up the possibility for very different solutions than we've been able to find in the past
0: or not. Yeah. So uh, speaking of the past and speaking to you about the past, since you're... Scholarship does concentrate on the late 19th century. Were there times, 76, Tilden beats Rutherford B. Hayes, but Hayes is president because of the Electoral College, 1888, uh, Harrison and Cleveland, same situation. Harrison becomes president over Glo- Grover Cleveland. Were there mass movements to change and amend things? And did they go south? I, I, I I'm so glad
1: you brought... Uh, Harrison and Cleveland and that because one of my, my one of my favorite images and not like as in like it but can you imagine being Grover Cleveland and you have just won re-election by a, by about a hundred thousand votes which is a lot in the nineteenth century and you have to move out of the White House I mean for all that we think about how miserable politics can be imagine how furious that man was, which I just is this wonderful moment. Was there a pushback that on the electoral college, what there really was in that period was the concept that the political system had been taken over by a very few wealthy men who were manipulating it for their own ends. So right after the Tilden Hayes conflict, which puts Hayes in the White House, one of the key architects of that was Thomas Scott, who was a railroad baron, and that they actually managed to come up to, with an agreement in March of 1877. In July of 1877, Hayes deploys the US Army to protect Thomas Scott's railroad industry um, in the the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, which is why we have the Posse Comitatus Act saying you can't use the army against American citizens on the heels of that. And then in 1888, when in fact, the the way that Harrison becomes president is there's a little bit of hanky-panky going on in the Electoral College and the New York delegation to make that happen. And there are a number of Americans who say, that's it, we've lost democracy. The rich guys have taken everything. And what you get on the heels of both of those events is a ground roots pushback against the taking over of the political system by the very wealthy. And that's one of the things that I'm watching really closely in the present is we don't and have not in the past, really since the 1970s, focused on the power of class issues in American society as much as race issues. And you can see the glimmerings of people talking about class again as a political force. And that if that happened, it would look a lot more like things looked in the 1870s and then the 1880s. And then really, frankly, in the 1920s and the early 1930s.
0: Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College. She is the author of the extremely popular Substack newsletter, Letters from an American, and her new book is Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America. Heather, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And now the spiel. I was listening to an unusual but compelling podcast the other day and realized that it was the anniversary of a central moment being documented therein. That Alan Cooper, on the 28th day of September 1990, committed an act of a lewd, obscene, and disgusting nature and outraged public decency by behaving in an indecent manner with a bottlenose dolphin to the great disgust and annoyance of divers and Her Majesty's subjects within whose purview such an act was committed. Wow. 33 years ago today, The Great Dolphin Fiddling of 90. The name of that podcast is Hooked on Freddy. The titular Freddy is or was a bottlenose dolphin who swam up to a town in the north of England, lo those many years ago. Freddy attracted a crowd and one particular animal rights activist, a man named Alan Cooper. Cooper swam with Freddy, but may have swum too close to the sun, as it were. As reporter Becky Milligan documents, in case you missed what was really going on, Milligan quotes contemporaneous accounts. He's wanking off the dolphin. That's the words he used, he's wanking off the dolphin. There is some dispute to the exact phrasing was that really said, which Milligan, ever the thorough journalist, acknowledges.
1: Peter denies using those exact words. But whatever words were used, the meaning is the same.
0: Which, of course, need not be restated yet again.
1: It's almost too awful for Alan to comprehend. He's been accused of masturbating Freddy.
0: Oh no. Look, I don't want to flog this particular subject, but I learned more about the intricacies of dolphin mating, dolphin frottage, and something that dolphins do with their private parts called hooking— that I thought I'd ever know. I know you're saying hooking, Mike, it's 2023. We call it sex work. No, we don't. Dolphins actually use their, um, their, their penises. They're constantly erect penises. This is all just mammalian zoology. And they use these appendages to steer a fellow marine life. And we're not even talking about the Charlie Rose or Matt Lauer of Dolphins. It's just Freddie, one of the good ones. The podcast is at the trial phase, meaning the defendant right now is before a barrister. Not that I'm sampling Wondery Plus for a seven-day period. But it is really good. It's a strong recommend. I may make adolescent jokes here in this space because I don't want to be accused of maturity or sensitivity. That is true. I would hate for you to think I'm going soft on my tendency to play with words, but it's a really good podcast. I genuinely wonder if Alan meant to do what others seemed to see him do or if their perceptions were wrong. Maybe it was one of those situations in the realm of, you know, accidentally on porpoise. Another great podcast I've been listening to is In the Scenes Behind Plain Sight in which two stars of a TV show that went off the air years ago reconvene on a podcast to discuss every episode of that show. The original show was Behind Plain Sight, the drama about a newspaper delivery man hunted by the mob who hides out in a nudist colony. Former stars Mike and Ian discuss nude suits, pixelation, and what it was like working with co-stars such as Greg Kinnear. The podcast, which actually can't be listened to on any device other than iPads, making it technically a podcast is called, In the Scenes. So, In the Scenes, Behind Plain Sight. Now, if you're saying, I am not familiar with Behind Plain Sight, don't worry, the show never happened. The podcast, Padcast, it's just an amazingly detailed and funny parody of those kinds of podcasts, like Talking Sopranos or The Office Ladies. The jokes are intricate, they're built on each other, but the ads kinda stand alone in their own brilliance. Here, one for the In the Scenes, Behind Plain Sight, Insider Plus option, I admit I had to wince in recognition at. Hey, this seems like a great time to talk about behind Insider Plus, our subscriber-only series where you can get extra episodes you don't get in the normal podcast feed. If you're listening to us talk and think, how long is this episode? Not long enough. If that's a question that you've answered in the thought of thinking about your experience of this show... Behinders Insider Plus is for you. If you think this isn't long enough, think again. For instance, this week's Behinder Insider Plus Extra is Mike and I just talking about Greg Kinnear's smile. The episode is 45 minutes long. We describe each of his teeth individually. So in the scenes behind Plain Sight which is made by Mike Danforth and Ian Chillog. Ian's been on this show before talking about his podcast, Everything is Alive, and there's a new season of that out now. I don't know what inspired me to mention what I'm going to plug next. Oh, and by the way, on Friday, I have a talk at the Williams Theater in Rutherford, New Jersey, 8 to 9.30 on cancel culture. But I want to now mention our Pesca Plus option. Well, if you want an ad free version of the gist, you can go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. But the Pesca Plus version gives you interviews. Yes, these interviews, these extended interviews, do represent the undoing of the editorial choices of our highly skilled editors. That is all true. But check this out we are having our first Pesca Plus trivia night on October 30th. That is, of course, right before a very special holiday. So it will be Pesca Plus Trivia Night, Piety Stravaganza. And lately, and regarding podcasts, you don't need to thank me. You don't need to credit me. I just, I'll credit myself. That's what I'm here for. You know, whenever someone tells you, go to podcasts, listen to it, wherever you get your podcasts on Apple or Google Play, guess what? I never said, or Google Play. I don't know anyone who listened to podcasts on Google Play. And guess what happened? There's no more Google Play. They unplugged the podcast part. So again, not for credit. This is just the kind of service I constantly render. And if you want to thank me and give a five-star review, you could do that now. Just go to Apple Pods, Pocket Cast, Overcast, or wherever you get your Podcasts. <music> And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. They're the ones who are making the editorial calls that we're almost totally undoing with the Pesca Plus segments. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. oomperoo gee And thanks for listening.